Edgar Allan Poe is the inventor of October, the spookiest boy who ever lived, and one of the most famous literary figures in American history. Ever since his untimely and mysterious death in 1849, Poe's stories and poems have inspired over a hundred years of adaptations and inspirations in writing, television, and film. Also, I personally believe that uh, the word poem was inspired by his name, because how could it not be? I'm your host, Anna Dresen, and this is the American Masters Podcast. With Halloween right around the corner, hope you have your costume picked out, you adult, we are lucky enough to have actor Dennis O'Hare in the studio to recite two of Edgar Allan Poe's most famous poems, The Raven and Annabelle Lee. O'Hare, a Tony-winning and Emmy-nominated actor, is perhaps best known for his performance on the FX show American Horror Story, which is too spooky for me to watch. But on Monday night, October 30th on PBS, you can watch his portrayal of Poe in American Masters, Edgar Allan Poe, Buried Alive. Hi, Michael Cantor here, executive producer of American Masters. We're here in the booth with Dennis O'Hare. Dennis, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. So we're here to talk about Edgar Allan Poe. And Dennis, he has some interest in Poe that, that's outside of our project. And I'm wondering how you first got interested in the great writer. I was looking to grow a good mustache. And uh, <laughs> so he's got one of the best. You know, as far as historical mustaches go, you can't do better. And so that was my initial attraction. That and the writing. Uh, <laughs> you have to dig deep to grow that mustache. Huh? <laughs> Truly. I've kept it. It was so hard. You know... As a kid, I was always attracted to monsters. I don't know why. So one of my favorite books growing up was a thing called How to Care for Your Monster. And it showed Frankenstein sitting under a basement stairs and the kid walking down with a plate of food. And I I don't know why I was so attracted to it. I was a vampire for Halloween. I was a werewolf for Halloween. I was Frankenstein for Halloween. And one of my favorite movies was uh, The Black Cat with Vincent Price and Peter Lorre, I think it was. I loved the vampire movies, anything to do with horror, I absolutely loved. And when I was around nine, I think, I came across a collection of Poe stories. The story that freaked me out the most, of course, was The Pit and the Pendulum, partly because just the idea of being strapped to a, you know, slab and having this massive blade coming closer and closer to you was so uh, disturbing, but also because it was a hard story to understand. The way it was written was really dense and obscure. And it wasn't until I was older that I really got what was happening. But it was, I got enough of the horror to understand it at 9 or 10. So when you took on this role in our documentary, what did you do to kind of prepare? You know, I read a bunch. Uh, reading is always a great way to jump into a character. I read probably two or three different biographies and, of course, looked at the poetry again. Uh, And then, you know, just sort of talked a lot with Eric about what his take was on what happened to Poe at the end. And we sort of had to get on the same page about what we think happened there. Eric Stange, the director. Who was really fantastic. And uh, we also talked a lot about where we thought he was at any given scene. And there was a lot of really ethereal stuff that we had to contemplate about the afterlife. There's this great sequence where we're sort of on a bridge with a lot of fog on either side, and we're we're actually reciting a poem. And we talked a lot about what Poe thinks he's doing in this non-literary space, non-literal space, rather. 
were in his mind, is he is he looking into the future? Is he looking into the afterlife? Is he looking toward heaven? What is he looking for? And so we sort of played with these really grand ideas of each step this direction equals a step toward oblivion and death, but also toward his lost love. So these great tensions built in between longing and fear, which seems to sum up the man. When you try and dive into actually reading his poetry or speaking his poetry, do you try and do it in a 19th century way? Do you try and make it present? Do you study it like Shakespeare? What's, how, do you, how do you attack actually trying to read it? Well, there's two really big elements you have to confront. One is who is the speaker? And the speaker is almost always a version of Poe or an idealized version of Poe. So you're considering who is this person, what is their circumstances, you know, in The Raven, for instance. What's the time point of view he's talking from? It's obviously post the event because he's talking about it. Well, how post the event? And he's obviously obsessed with the event, so how does he talk about the fact that he's obsessed with this event? Um, but as a, as a technical feat, you're also telling a story. And good storytelling means you have to have structure and you have to have a journey. So you can't all be at one pitch and you can't come from just one point of view. You have to help the reader discover the picture with you. And the, the big technical mountain to climb is that this is a different time period. It's a different style, different aesthetics. It's hard for us to hear it the way they heard it. The uh, emphasis on rhyme can sound to our ears facile or childish. But that's in the tradition of, you know, a great lay or a great song or a great chant. It was much more acceptable, I think, in that period. And he works in that technique masterfully. He really does surprise by making the rhymes inevitable but still discoverable. His poems really have a lot of energy and forward movement, pushing them forward. They don't end stop at each line, which is the danger with a rhyme. And do you have a favorite of them all? You know, I do like some of the more obscure ones. We read a lot of them during the filming of Poe, and I was really happy to get to explore them. But you really can't go wrong with The Raven. You just can't. It's famous for a reason. It it's, was the most popular poem of the 19th century. Isn't that crazy to consider? In fact, if you think about, ask anyone today to recite poetry, you know, what are they going to come out with? I think that I shall never see a poem as lovely as a tree. You know, something there is that does not love a wall. I mean, they're going to get, you're only going to get so far. Well, whose woodies are, I think I know. His house is in the village, though. But, you know, thinking about what poems come to mind easily, he's up there with, you know, Dickinson, Frost. Frost, yeah. Who else? I mean, really, these, these are the poems that come to him, Wordsworth. And The Raven at the time, as you mentioned, was this incredibly popular poem. Everybody knew it. Students recited it. And then he himself would recite it in salons, in, in you know, the drawing rooms of, of very wealthy women in New York. Well, thanks for joining us, and uh, we look forward to hearing your readings. Thank you. It's great to be here. The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe Once upon a midnight dreary while I pondered, weak and weary, over many a quaint and curious volume of forgotten lore, while I nodded, nearly napping, suddenly there came a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at my chamber door. "'Tis some visitor,' I muttered, 
tapping at my chamber door. Only this, and nothing more. Ah, distinctly, I remember it was in the bleak December, and each separate dying ember wrought its ghost upon the floor. Eagerly I wished the morrow. Vainly I had sought to borrow from my books surcease of sorrow, sorrow for the lost Lenore, for the rare and radiant maiden whom the angels named Lenore, nameless here forevermore. And the silken sad uncertain rustling of each purple curtain thrilled me, filled me with fantastic terrors never felt before, so that now, to still the beating of my heart, I stood repeating, "'Tis some visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door, some late visitor entreating entrance at my chamber door. This it is, and nothing more." Presently my soul grew stronger, hesitating then no longer. Sir said I, or madam, truly your forgiveness I implore, but the fact is I was napping, and so gently you came rapping, and so faintly you came tapping, tapping at my chamber door, that I scarce was sure I heard you. Here I opened wide the door. Darkness there, and nothing more. Deep into that darkness peering, long I stood there wondering, fearing, doubting, dreaming dreams no mortal ever dared to dream before, but the silence was unbroken, and the stillness gave no token, and the only word there spoken was the whispered word, Lenore. This I whispered, and an echo murmured back the word, Lenore. Merely this, and nothing more. Back into the chamber turning, all my soul within me burning, soon again I heard a tapping somewhat louder than before. Surely, said I, surely that is something at my window lattice. Let me see then what thereat is, and this mystery explore. Let my heart be still a moment, and this mystery explore. Tis the wind, and nothing more. Open here I flung the shutter, when with many a flirt and flutter in there stepped a stately raven of the saintly days of yore. Not the least obeisance made he, not a minute stopped or stayed he, but with mien of lord or lady, perched above my chamber door, perched upon a bust of palace, just above my chamber door, perched and sat, and nothing more. Then this ebony bird, beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, by the grave and stern decorum of the countenance it wore, though thy crest be shorn and shaven, thou, I said, art sure no craven, ghastly grim and ancient raven, wandering from the nightly shore. Tell me what thy lordly name is on the night's Plutonian shore. Quoth the raven, nevermore. Much I marveled this ungainly fowl to hear discourse so plainly, though its answer little meaning, little relevancy bore. For we cannot help agreeing that no living human being ever yet was blessed with seeing bird above his chamber door, bird or beast upon the sculptured bust above his chamber door, with such name as nevermore. But the raven, sitting lonely on the placid bust, spoke only that one word, as if his soul in that one word he did outpour, nothing further than he uttered. Not a feather, then he fluttered, till I scarcely more than muttered, Other friends have flown before, 
on the morrow he will leave me, as my hopes have flown before. Then the bird said, Nevermore. Startled at the stillness broken by reply so aptly spoken, Doubtless, said I, what it utters is its only stock and store, caught from some unhappy master whom unmerciful disaster followed fast and followed faster till his songs one burden bore, till the dirges of his hope that melancholy burden bore of never, never more. But the raven, still beguiling my sad fancy into smiling, straight I wheeled a cushioned seat in front of bird and bust and door. Then, upon the velvet sinking, I betook myself to linking fancy unto fancy, thinking what this ominous bird of yore, what this grim, ungainly, ghastly, gaunt, and ominous bird of yore meant in croaking nevermore. This I sat engaged in guessing, but no syllable expressing to the fowl whose fiery eyes now burned into my bosom's core. This and more I sat divining, with my head at ease reclining on the cushion's velvet lining that the lamplight gloated o'er, but whose velvet violet lining with the lamplight gloating o'er she shall press, ah, nevermore. Then, methought, the air grew denser, perfume from an unseen censer swung by seraphim whose footfalls tinkled on the tufted floor. Wretch, I cried, thy God hath lent thee, by these angels he hath sent thee, respite, respite and nepenthe from thy memories of Lenore, quaff, oh, quaff this kind nepenthe and forget this lost Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still if bird or devil, whether tempter sent or whether tempest tossed thee here ashore, desolate yet all undaunted on this desert land enchanted, on this home by horror haunted, tell me truly, I implore, is there, is there balm in Gilead? Tell me, tell me, I implore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Prophet, said I, thing of evil, prophet still, if bird or devil, by that heaven that bends above us, by that God we both adore, tell this soul with sorrow laden, if within the distant Aden it shall clasp a sainted maiden whom the angels name Lenore, clasp a rare and radiant maiden whom the angels name Lenore, quoth the raven, nevermore. Be that word our sign in parting, bird or fiend, I shrieked, upstarting. Get thee back into the tempest and the night's plutonian shore. Leave no black plume as a token of that lie thy soul has spoken. Leave my loneliness unbroken. Quit the bust above my door. Take thy beak from out my heart and take thy form from off my door, quoth the raven, nevermore. And the raven, never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust of Pallas, just above my chamber door. And his eyes, 
have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming, and the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor, and my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. Dennis, where did Poe write The Raven? Professor Dennis Paoli teaches gothic fiction at Hunter College here in New York. He wrote the screenplay for the cult hit film Reanimator and wrote the teleplays for two episodes of the TV series Masters of Horror. Poe probably wrote The Raven while he was working in Lower Manhattan, editing a couple of magazines in long days, uh, spending long hours writing and proofreading the work of others to put these magazines together. Uh, He hadn't been in New York very long, and he had just moved into a small house with his wife and her mother uh, on a farm in what is now my neighborhood. Uh, I live on 84th Street and West End Avenue, and 84th Street has been renamed Edgar Allan Poe Street because it was there during that time that he wrote The Raven. It's likely that, as poor as he was, he would be walking to work every day and walking home at night, a journey of 10 miles total. And if you listen to The Raven, the insistent rhythm of it, the march that its meter takes, once upon a midnight dreary, you can almost hear him walking. And it's almost as if his imagination were focused on that rhythm as he walked and in it developing the most spectacular poem of its time. And when you hear that spectacular poem, what does it make you think about the character? What's happening to the character? What should someone who maybe has never heard the poem be listening for? The character uh, in The Raven is like many of the characters in Poe's stories. Uh, If you read a number of his stories, The Telltale Heart, uh, The Black Cat, some of his most famous stories, uh, The Cask of Amontillado, uh, they're first-person narrators. They're told by a character who is uh, engaged in a psychological struggle, often a psychological struggle with himself. And that is indeed the situation of the young scholar, that we engage in The Raven. He is, loves his literature. He's weak and weary from his study. And suddenly he hears a tapping, as of someone gently rapping, rapping at his chamber door, but there's no one there. Then there's rapping at the window, and there's no one there. It's as if the world around him suddenly changed, and he was seeing it, or in this case, hearing it anew. And suddenly, we are confronted by this figure of the raven. It's the 19th century, remember. People lived closer to nature back then. Uh, And I imagine a bird in the house was not that abnormal, especially if we remember that Poe is living in a farmhouse at the time. We know it's symbolic, but for all of the poem, we have no idea what it really is symbolic of. It's a mystery. It's a mystery to us, and it's certainly a mystery to the scholar who tries to engage with it and tries to explain its 
It's also insistent answer to all of his questions and all of his challenges, nevermore. What does this mean, the scholar, being a scholar, wants desperately for a rational explanation. And he tries to explain it. And he tries to understand it. And as he does, he, we start to see his mental condition break down to the point where he has totally revealed himself as emotionally fractured and totally bereft for the loss of his lost love, Lenore. The character who, who gives us the story of the raven, you've pointed out as a scholar. And, and one of the, when I was reading it, one of the important ideas is that the raven sits on a bust. Mm-hmm. Why is that important? Who, what's, who, who is a bust of Pallas? It's probably Pallas Athena, the goddess, the Greek goddess. Uh, she's the goddess, one might say ironically, of war on the one hand and poetry on the other. And it makes one think, if one puts those together, that Poe, in writing his poetry, was in some way at war with himself or at war with the poetic principles of his time. Uh, Poe was a a thorny character and uh, constantly, because he was so poor, because he worked so hard, and because he knew he was so talented and his talent, never thought his talent was appreciated to the extent that it should be, that he was constantly confrontational in his work. Uh, To the extent that, if you notice, his characters always end up confronting themselves because the raven never answers more than the mysterious response, never more, which is so meaningful it's almost meaningless. The character simply has to end up confronting himself because the bird, like the bust on which it sits, is uh, almost as of stone. Implacable. Exactly. Now, do you feel like the nevermore provided by the raven is always inflected the same way or that in in the character's perception of it, it's different? That's a very interesting question. Uh, because it, it is a choice that any performer of the poem would have to make. And I wish we could be back and listen to Poe perform this. It's a poem that Poe performed in his lifetime many times because it was the most popular poem of his age. It's why he got asked uh, and booked into venues uh, to do readings uh, up and down the East Coast. Uh, it is likely that at least at the beginning of the poem, Nevermore is intoned the same way every time. Because one of the first explanations the scholar comes up with is that the raven has Been learned taught. the word right. uh, like a parrot from a, a master, a master kind of. and has escaped the master. So in that respect, the Scholar is more likely to believe that if the word is intoned the same every time. So therefore, you could do that all the way through the poem so that the only time you escape the scholar's psyche is when the raven speaks, is in the raven's speech. So it's almost as if you're coming back to a reality that is inimical uh, to the 
feelings and the uh, the breakdown of the student. On the other hand, if you hear it from his perspective, it probably becomes perhaps more harrowing in some way, louder, more insistent, uh, more authoritative, more authoritarian, uh, more dangerous. And uh, indeed, at the end of the poem, he feels as if the bird's beak has pierced his heart. And while the bird hasn't moved, it's still sitting. But the student has a terrifying Gothic fantasy about the bird and what it has wrought on his poor person, on his poor life, on his poor conception of himself. And if you take that as your evidence, it's entirely possible that you start to read those last nevermores in a more, uh, a more gothic uh, tone until perhaps the last one when it goes back just to nevermore. So The Raven is Poe's most popular piece. What do you think is his most personal poem? Probably Annabelle Lee. Uh, and Annabelle Lee isn't published till after he dies. Till after he dies. It's one of the last poems that he writes. Uh, he predicts that he's going to die young, so he probably believes that he's approaching the end of his life. Uh, nothing is going right for him. He's in, a, 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 in, in an even worse state than he usually uh, was. He's as poor as he always was, his wife has been dead for a year and a half, just over a year. Uh, and he uh, is still in mourning and is grieving and is uh, openly bereft. And the Annabelle Lee, while it's pretty, it's a pretty poem, uh, it's, it's almost like a, a sweet song, so sorrowful and so infused with genuine sadness that it's his most uh, profoundly personal poem. Well, thank you so much, Dennis Paoli. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate your coming by. Thank you. Well, the other poem we're going to read today uh, is Annabelle Lee. Dennis O'Hare, thanks so much for reading and bringing us into the mind of Edgar Allan Poe. So... Why was Annabelle Lee important to you? You know, the thing about good poetry like this is that it's easy to remember. It sticks in the brain. It has a structure and a, a, and a kind of like attraction to it. So the rhythm of Annabelle Lee is so um, seductive. It, it really, it, 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 like for a kid, it's like an earworm. It stays in your head. You can't get it out. It was many and many a year ago in a kingdom by the sea that a maiden they lived whom you may know by the name of Annabel Lee. You kind of, you want to keep saying it over and over again. It's like, and also like Shakespeare, good verse is easy to remember, is easy to memorize because it has a formula. It has a mathematical structure that if you get it wrong, you feel it. You know it's wrong. You feel it's wrong. And when it's right, it feels right. And so much of Poe's poems feel right. It's like a great song that sort of embeds itself in you. Yeah, yeah. You remember when you first heard it. 19th century earworm. Annabelle Lee by Edgar Allan Poe. 
It was many and many a year ago, in a kingdom by the sea, that a maiden there lived whom you may know by the name of Annabelle Lee. And this maiden she lived with no other thought than to love and be loved by me. I was a child, and she was a child in this kingdom by the sea, but we loved with a love that was more than love, I and my Annabel Lee, with a love that the winged seraphs of heaven coveted her and me. And this was the reason that long ago in this kingdom by the sea, a wind blew out of a cloud, chilling my beautiful Annabel Lee, so that her high-born kinsmen came and bore her away from me to shut her up in a sepulchre in this kingdom by the sea. The angels, not half so happy in heaven, went envying her and me. Yes, that was the reason, as all men know in this kingdom by the sea, that the wind came out of the cloud by night, chilling and killing my Annabel Lee. But our love, it was stronger by far than the love of those who were older than we, of many far wiser than we, and neither the angels in heaven above nor the demons down under the sea can ever dissever my soul from the soul of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life, and my bride, in her sepulchre there by the sea, in her tomb by the sounding sea. We want to give a special thanks to musician Damon Harjo Wirogo for composing music for today's episode. I'm your host, Anna Dresen, and um, stay spooky, you guys. The American Masters podcast is produced by Joe Skinner with sound engineering by John Berman, Ed Campbell, and Josh Broom. Original artwork for the American Masters podcast has been designed by Christiana Lombardo. For American Masters, we'd like to give a special thanks to series producer Julie Sachs and supervising producer Junko Sunashima. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher for future episodes. And visit the American Masters website at pbs.org slash americanmasters for very cool digital archive gems, past episodes, and more. Come back in two weeks for our next episode of the American Masters podcast. Podcast.